0: This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts.
1: Hi, I'm Imma. I live in Scotland. Hi, I'm Jen and I'm from Canada.
0: Hi, I'm Ola Banji and I'm from Nigeria.
2: Hello, I'm Liki and I live in Paris.
3: Hey, I'm Rod I'm from Peru.
2: Welcome to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day, with everyone, from everywhere in the world. In our conversations, we share ideas, perspectives, questions, and things we can actually do to make a difference. So don't be shy and join our carbon sessions because it's not too late. Okay.
4: Hello, I'm Licky. I'm Ola I'm Christina.
5: I'm Rob.
1: I'm Jen.
0: I'm Steve.
5: And I'm Brian, and we are pleased to welcome everyone to today's episode of Carbon Sessions. It's a very special day today because it's both our 100th episode and we have a very, very special guest with us today. Leakey, let me turn it over to you to do the honors of introducing today's guest.
4: Okay. Thank you, Brian. I'm very excited today to introduce you, our guest, Seth Gooden, the founding editor, the brand, the instigator, the maestro behind the Carbon Almanac and behind so many other peripheral projects that have been launched within the community, including this very podcast. So, Seth is the author of 20 international best-selling books and have changed the way people think about work and have been translated into 38 languages. Seth writes the most popular marketing blog in the world and speaks to audiences around the world. Seth is the founder of the Alt-MBA, the former CEO of social media Pioneer's Quido, the former VP of direct marketing at Yahoo, and the founder of Yoyodyne, one of the very first internet companies. Welcome, Seth.
3: I'm just so blown away. 100 episodes. What a crew. Wow. Well done. Thank you.
4: So, Seth, you've got a great story about the genesis of the Carbon Almanac, which We talked through on the Carbon Collective podcast, episode 15, one of the last, or actually the last episode of the series. So we won't go into that today, but we encourage our listeners to go listen to that conversation between you and Nikki, the editor-in-chief of Portfolio of Penguin Random House, and it's a lovely episode discussing why you started this, where the idea came from, and what you accomplished in 24 hours how you choose the Almanac format for the book. So my very first question to you today, um, it's been 18 months since you've started working on the Carbon Almanac project and almost nine or 10 months since the Carbon Almanac was published. What do you think is going well and what do you think is going not so well?
3: Oh boy, so much to cover. Okay, so... The world has an epidemic of loneliness, and we also have an epidemic of uh, fouling the place where we live, leaving behind a mess for other people to clean up. And they're sort of related. And one of the things that I discovered is that the internet is a fine place to meet caring people, to make connections that could last a lifetime. That the internet enables you to Look at somebody who's only one inch by one inch on your screen, but know that that person would put you up for the night if you were in town. Know that somebody is walking in the same direction as you. And in a world where so many people feel helpless or without meaning, the last year and a half have shown so many of us in this circle that it's possible if you extend yourself that others will extend them. And that gives me optimism about our climate. Because the Earth doesn't care if the weather changes. We do. And it's beyond discussion. People who care at all about their reputation as being thoughtful no longer talk about the fact that the climate is changing. It and then the question is what to do about it. And what this crew figured out is that while the world wanted a shortcut, they wanted a palliative, they wanted something that would make them feel good for five minutes, We refused to do that. And we just said, here's what you need to know. Here's what you're going to need to know, regardless of whether someone comes out with single-use laundry sheets or not, regardless of whether you decide to fly on an airplane ever again or not. Because knowing leads to conversation, and conversations lead to connection, and connection leads to better.
0: Wow. Thank you. Thank you for that answer. Um, So today we're recording our 100th, episode of Carbon Sessions, and Carbon Sessions is a podcast where we have conversations on climate change and the environment You know, with everyday people from just about anywhere in the world. Um, it's been a year and we've had so many fantastic conversations on diverse topics like food, food systems, energy systems, transportation, health, and so on. One time we interviewed um, an ESG professor in London We've also had rare earth engineers in Australia. We've had bikes activists in the U.S., um, a tequila distiller in South America, golfers, and like so many people um, that we've been privileged to meet. When we started, we actually thought that we would run out of topics or things to talk about very fast. But the more we have these conversations, the more we want to talk about climate change, the more we want to talk about the environment, we meet people that also want to do the same and so now, we only don't know if we're ever going to run out, but we don't want to, and we don't see it coming soon <laughs> um but while we explore these multifaceted approaches to to climate change, sometimes we come across people that don't see the challenge from the same angle that we see it, or do not necessarily agree with what needs to be done or how it needs to be done we we feel we feel like Climate change is a wee problem, and that's why we're here having conversations about it. And we need to incorporate all the points of view since we can't solve the problems by ourselves. But to give you an example, um, some argue that clean energy is an excuse that some people in rich countries use to prevent poorer countries from economic development because the use of clean energy has more constraints and is expensive. Um, they say that it's a way to sort of maintain economic dominion. But the argument is that, well, the rich countries developed using greenhouse gases and now they are saying poorer countries should not do the same. And so the question for you is, why should poorer countries be limited to the use of fossil fuel resources since it's the cheapest, the fastest way to develop? And how do we respond with empathy to... To this discussion?
3: Oh, well, I'm glad we're starting with something easy, <laughs> um, Here's Here's what my take on it is, speaking as myself, not as an almanac person. Uh, it is a we problem, but it does not need to be a unanimous mm-hmm. solution. There are no problems that are ever solved by everybody. And at some level, and not people you're talking about here. But in general, at some level, we will encounter trolls. We will encounter people who profit from the status quo. We will encounter people who like being the one who's shouting fire movie in a crowded firehouse. But we need to ignore those people and realize that systemic, cultural, and technical change is the only path we have for. Given that that's the case, I have a take as a technologist on what I think somebody in uh, a country that has been disenfranchised should want their country to develop. But even before we get there, it's very clear that A, colonial powers will do everything they can to stay powerful, and B, hemispheres are still part of the big circle. And it doesn't do you any good to get more rich if you're also underwater. So if you're thinking about a country like Bangladesh, Bangladesh is going to lose tens of millions of people who will either perish or become climate migrants in my lifetime. That is more expensive than solar power. So I wish that Bangladesh going solar would be sufficient to solve the problem. I'm only bringing it up because even though it's not Bangladesh's fault, that carbon has risen the way it has they 're going to have to bear the brunt of it because the earth doesn 't care. the earth is doing going to do what the earth does with all that said, my friend Jacqueline Jacqueline, who runs the Acumen Fund, has pioneered an enormous amount of work in off grid energy off grid energy is extraordinarily powerful for uh developing or previously colonialized countries, and the reason is it takes control of the power grid away from plutocrats and people that would seek to extract the maximum amount of revenue and diversify. Number two is over time, it gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper so that bringing solar lanterns to a small village is way cheaper than wiring them with a high power line. And once solar lanterns show up, enough Economic activity ensues that you can afford to buy a solar generator and then something that burns rice husks or whatever it is. so what I have seen in uh in Kenya what I've seen in India what I've seen in other countries that are adopting off grid energy is that this is exactly what the rich companies would have countries would have done in nineteen hundred or eighteen hundred if they had had the chance, but they didn't so The same way we saw South Korea leapfrog so much of the world when it came to cellular connection, because they didn't have to get rid of their old system, we're going to see a lot of countries leapfrog in this direction as well. One small aside about South Korea. In 1962, South Korea was the third poorest country in the world, poorer than Haiti. And now it's one of the five richest countries in the world. That happened because of a technical advance not because they went back and tried to start from 1800 and catch up. That the real win for countries that have been left out of this conversation is not to go back to burning whale oil and then follow the path. The real win is to take advantage of the breakthroughs that have happened in solar and other things and leapfrog. Oh
5: my goodness, Seth.
3: Two rants in a row. (laughs) Two questions, two rants.
5: (laughs) We love it. We love it. Seth, so that, was, that was like an inspiring series of examples that are sort of feeding into my question that I have for you. You know, For myself, since getting involved in the Carbon Almanac, I've learned so many amazing things which have both inspired me to change my own behaviors as well as improve my hope for the future. Um, so from the bottom of my heart, thank you for getting this book and the resultant community going. Um, I'm curious, is there a detail or a fact or a bit of knowledge that you've learned from the Carbon Almanac community that still impacts your behavior today or helps you to have more hope for the future?
3: Well, there are two parts to your question. One is things I learned about the climate that have changed my behavior. Um, The two biggest, easiest things are cows and travel. And I can't stop drinking milk or eating meat because I haven't in 30 years. But it has made me aghast that even though there are people who are informed and who care and who will acknowledge that between 20 and 30% of the challenge we face comes from one thing, the billion cows on earth, that we have not uh, had a more significant conversation about just killing all billion cows and moving on because we can and we should. And most people on earth won't change the way they eat or live if we do. And right there, we will make a huge impact. Um, But when I blog about things like that, that's when I get the nastiest mail. Because I think that there are a lot of people who would like to just pretend that they don't have to change anything in their life or their livelihood to deal with this problem. That it's not important enough. Um, And then the second thing is, uh, as somebody from the wealthiest part of the wealthiest part of the world, uh, I'm aware that I gave a thousand speeches And that I would fly there and fly back right away. So I haven't gotten on an airplane for work in more than two years. And I have no plans to do it again. My life has gotten significantly better. I've reached even more people. The miracle of this conversation where we are on at least three continents um, is proof that if the airplane was invented today, it would probably not be used very much for business. And we are just, you know, profligately burning stuff because we're used to it, not because we have to. Uh, but I don't think either of the two solutions I'm talking about are the key. I think the key is creating cultural change that is focused on uh, resilience and equity because they go together. And you know, we have 7 billion jobs on this planet. In 1900, there weren't 100 million, 200 million jobs on this planet. Where did they all come from? The jobs came from us inventing them. And the same way we know how to invent jobs, we know how to invent a culture that is resilient. And I am heartened that in the last two years, the conversations about that are coming up often in many generations of people on many countries around the planet. So I'm not sure people feel. Technically competent enough to argue uh, the details of methane, but I think everybody understands that acting like a short-term uh, selfish person is not who they want to be.
5: Yeah, that's beautifully said. As a, as actually, and I don't know that you know this, as a former, I grew up raising cattle, beef cattle. Um, that we were just joking at the preamble to the session. We, I now we now switched over to cashmere goats and produce fiber instead on the farm. Um, that was a beautiful answer. I, I married a vegan and happily lived this like gifted life of, of dietary shift. And it's, I will say for our listeners, it's so easy. There's so many amazing, tasty things out there. So help make that shift. Christina, we're handing it over to you.
1: You said that you are so productive and impactful in your days. Can you share with us? How do you structure your day and how do you balance work and personal life?
3: The first thing I want to say is uh, there's no such thing as work-life balance. There's just life. And you can spend some of your life at work, but this idea that there's some sort of magical balance is a myth. And what I decided to do was embrace certain things that were uncomfortable once, And then I never had to deal with them. So I don't go to meetings. I don't have a staff. I don't watch television unless my wife makes me watch a half an hour. Um, And I write a blog post every day. Well, that gives me seven hours that most people, and I don't use social media. So that gives me seven hours that most people don't have every day. I decided once. And so now I have these habits. And I'm actually not that productive. I spend most of my day, if I had a camera in here, eating chocolate, and wandering around, looking at things. That's most of my day. Um, sometimes more chocolate, sometimes less chocolate, but that's most of my day. Uh, but the difference between me and many people is I ship stuff. And, you know, Netflix just announced that they're going to make, quote, fewer movies, but better movies. And the guys who run Pixar told me that they were only capable of making one good movie a year. This is nonsense. This is nonsense that you don't increase the quality of what you do by doing less. You increase the quality of what you do by doing more and then picking the good stuff and shipping that. And so you haven't seen the 4,000 blog posts I've erased, and you haven't seen the three entire books worth of writing I've done that I've deleted. But if I hadn't done that, if I'd just been sitting around waiting for better, Nothing would happen
1: um, I think it's me. Hi, Jen. Hi, Nice to see you. <laughs> um, spearheading a project as big as the carbon allman act is is quite a feat. Um, keeping volunteers on track and and leading while not taking charge in an overt way, letting people create and express themselves and and now there's this global movement that seems to have a life of its own, and so my question I have two questions. What do you hope for or dream for as far as this particular collective goes? And as a follow-up, as far as the climate goes, what keeps you awake at night?
3: Um, I didn't spearhead the project. I hosted the project. And every time I felt like I needed to spearhead it, I knew I was doing the wrong thing. Because I've made almanacs before. I could have done this myself if I had had nine or ten years of time. And the where was all, to stick with it. But it would have been a tiny fraction of the magic that is here now. The, my most important job was to create the conditions for each of you to do what you did. People I have never met in person, to connect with each other and build something that I couldn't even have imagined. And I didn't want my name to be on the cover. The publisher insisted. It's not my book, but I was the host. And What keeps me up at night is pretty simple. It was 90 degrees here in New York. It's April. That's what kept me up. And um, the weather is not the climate, but the weather is here and it's here now. And the question is, when this gets worse, it's going to get worse. It's going to get so much worse. What will we do with the 50 million climate refugees? What will we do with the people who can't find enough to eat? Because our temptation as panicked humans will be to just burn more stuff. And so I'm not here to preach Armageddon. I'm just here to say, you're about to send a message to the you in five years. And the you in five years is going to ask you what you were doing five years ago when were something to do. And that doesn't mean we have to sacrifice our entire lives. But it means this is the one. You don't have to have a political point of view. You don't have to have seen any science fiction movies. You just have to realize that in this moment, industrialism isn't the answer. It's the problem. And we're going to have to find ways that are inconvenient and filled with effort to get back on track. And I think there's all generation people coming along who are aware of that. Yeah, I
5: think that's that's very true. Um, Seth, speaking of sort of you know, those inconveniences and, and getting uncomfortable, um, one of the messages in the Carbon Almanac is that we need systematic change, but we also need individual change because it's the sum of all of those individual actions and behaviors that create a culture. In the site to stop and reverse climate change, we need a this drastic shift in our own mindsets and overall community. Uh, mindset in how we consume, how we travel, as you've just spoken about, how we interact with each other. So individual change change is also important because it can help lead to that systematic change. Uh, We're very proud of our fellow Carbon Almanac community members advocating for personal action change, like one of our prior guests, Josh Spodick, who shared his sustainable life journey uh, and travel, or lack of travel many other changes on this podcast, and our colleague Laurie Sullivan, who has recently published a book titled A Shade Greener at Home, um, a room by room guide to reduce toxins, lighten your environmental footprint, and live simpler. And in honor of that book and, and its title, I wanted to ask you, and sorry, your comment, is there any personal action or systematic change that you'd like to share with our audience today? Something that maybe we can all consider enacting to help our world be a shade greener? or maybe just a lens through which you look at your individual decisions or actions and how they can influence systematic change.
3: I I think that personal actions are important for two reasons and not important for a third. They're important if they change the way the people around you act. And they're important if they remind you to keep doing systemic work. So, I have enough of an ego that I think that me not flying to conferences makes it more likely that conferences invite some speakers to speak virtually. And if some speakers get better at speaking virtually, more conferences will invite speakers to speak virtually, and then conferences won't have any attendees in real life. And so me not flying has this really Mm -hmm. significant multiplier effect, perhaps. Plus, every day that I'm giving up 80% of my income by not flying, I'm reminding myself that I have put my money where my mouth is, so I better put my mouth back in because what's the point of putting your money where your mouth is if you don't put your mouth in? On the other hand, I do not believe that me recycling one square of aluminum foil is going to do anything to the climate that anybody can measure. That's not a good reason to do it. So, it's this weird dilemma, which is, yes, the system is the sum of our actions. The question is which act. So the example I like to give is, in addition to cows, one of the most egregious, easy-to-fix problems with climate in the United States and Canada is two-stroke engines in leaf blower. Using a leaf blower for one hour produces as much nitrous selves, whatever, Uh, carbon equivalent as driving a pickup truck from New York to Los Angeles. Now, if you had a neighbor who regularly just sent pickup trucks from New York to Los Angeles for no reason, you would point out to them that that's sort of stupid. But there they are. They got a Tesla in their garage, but they're using that leaf blower for an hour. So you could do the first thing, which is I'm not going to use a leaf blower. That's nice. But what you really could do with almost as much effort, not much more, is make leaf blowers against the law in your town. Because as soon as leaf blowers are against the law in your town, people just switch to rakes or battery operated leaf floor and the problem will go away. And in my town, leaf blowers are against the law for six months a year. That makes no sense. And <laughs> I'm pushing, I'm pushing for 12. Why isn't it happening? Because there's four landscape contractors who are used to the old way. And so, how to get them to change? They don't live in town. Well, the way to get them to change is to have their clients say, We don't want you using that on our yard. And if only 10 clients said it, they would stop. So, these sorts of actions, because if it's in three towns, then the contractor is going to just give up, right? And then it's going to be in 20 towns and it's going to be, a, and then all of a sudden, leaf blowers, the manufacturer can say, It's not worth making them anymore. We're done. That's so much more impactful than you quietly in the safety of your own home using one less piece of aluminum foil. So, yes, I'm totally in favor of personal action. But I want to remind people, all systemic action that we are proud of in our world has begun with people taking community action.
5: I love that. Well said.
3: Hi, Seth. It was such a big project, this getting the...
6: The almanac done, and and almost when it was done, when it was published, that was the end. Well, no, but it wasn't, and there's still a process that's still going on. But when, when you're doing such a big thing, the early steps rarely look like the final destination. Mm-hmm. So, uh, just curious about the did the progress that the work took that did it follow the path you were
3: expecting? Well, or was it a surprise? And, and was the no? It's a great question, Steve. Um, and how is Dylan? Because we haven't heard an update about Dylan. Is he okay? <laughs>
2: he's doing really well, actually. Okay. Yes, he's doing Um,
3: New house, but he's doing well. So uh, Brian asked, or somebody asked about post-publishing and leadership. The thing that is so thrilling for me is that this thing that you're doing has been going on for 100 episodes without me even participating in any way. That was the goal, is to have dozens, hundreds of leaders who then bring on dozens, hundreds of other people who lead to more leaders. It wasn't about making a book. It was about making a community of action. As for what it was like to build, so I've done 140 books, 120 as a book package or 20 as a quote author, never missed a deadline, I've never gone over budget. So people in publishing know that if I say something's going to show up, it's going to show up. And September was fascinating because we weren't exactly sure about so many things. But November and December, very scary. Because I thought one of the straightforward problems to solve would be taking finished information and laying it out in InDesign. And we didn't have anybody who was ready to do it. And my life, my career passed before my eyes in that moment because this was a step I didn't anticipate and it was fraught because we didn't have time to screw around. Fortunately, a whole bunch of people showed up in a way that was generous and thoughtful and selfless and magically, through enormous amounts of effort, made it happen. And That's what happened with every page of the Almanac, in fact, with every fact, with every cartoon, with every fact check, it was like, well, we don't know who's going to do this, but someone's going to do this. And then they did. And after the fact, we can point to any, you know, cathedral in in Europe, uh, any, uh, you know, the IBM 360 code base, name it. Nobody knew when they started exactly how those things were going to come together. But the fact that we can talk about them afterwards is because they came together. And the key for me as the host was making sure the right people were in the room. And most of the people who were in the room were people I didn't know in advance. And they saw what needed to be done. They brought page 19 thinking and they did it. And the thrill to me after the thrill of holding the book and being so proud of what you did is knowing that you're continuing to do this. And that you don't need me to tell you or approve of any of it. Cause it's not mine. It's just the party that keeps going. Rob, it's your turn. It's always your turn. <laughs> We're all admiring your headphones, Rob.
6: they to hide my ears. So, um, I, I'm a work in progress, um, as you can see. Um, and, uh, in this last year I've made, um, um, a huge network of friends. And, um, and I think that. There's a lot that's changed in me in this last 12 months. Uh, I have you and my network of friends to thank for that. And I'm just wondering, Seth, um, how you feel the project has changed you?
3: I will try not to get choked up. Um, this has changed me at a very deep, almost molecular level. Uh, my new book, which is out in a couple of weeks, is part of this, The one of the symptoms of that different voice that's in my head. One, that's about humanity and possibility, uh, about uh, generative as opposed to scarce solution. You know, everybody on this call, everyone who's listening, either got sick, knows someone who got sick or passed away from the worldwide pandemic that we don't even talk about anymore. Um, And so we're all older than we used to be. And we're all looking about how will I spend tomorrow because I don't get a chance to do it over again. And when I think about the comfort and confidence and beauty that I felt every single day, I mean, I was in discourse for 10 hours a day, every day, seven days a week for nine months. And I did it partly because it needed to be done and partly because I couldn't believe I was able to do it, that I was lucky enough to hang out with this crew of people. And I don't think I'm ever going to go back to the person that I used to be. It um, There's a lot of sadness and grief about the state of our planet, but there's also a lot of humanity and humility and joy that comes from seeing other people, maybe who didn't win the birthday lottery, maybe who have been on the short end of some stick when it comes to social status or caste or class. But to see what humans are capable of when they're in sync and when they set aside, you know, scarcity, it's thrilling. And it gave me great hope for the future.
6: Thank you, Seth. That's a beautiful answer. It, the humility uh, that you talk about, um, I suppose, brings me on to my next question, um, because in our business, we're wrestling, uh, with how we can influence our customers, our regulators and our suppliers. I'm just wondering how, if you have any thoughts on that, um, there is, there is a a kind of supply and demand thing in terms of sustainability.
3: I I don't know which business you're in. Does it matter?
6: Um, I happen to be an orthodontist. So we use a lot of plastic and I've been to exhibitions and people have said, can we help you? And when I ask them what their sustainability plans are, and they have this large quantity of plastic in front of them,
3: um, it makes them feel a little bit embarrassed. Um, and I, Understood. So, so I have a, I have a small rant about this. You may have noticed um, that worldwide, the Olympics hold cities hostage and get them to bid against each other to yeah. host something that's not going to make money. And in North America, and also with with football, soccer in uh, Europe, the same thing goes on with team ownership. You know, the place where I'm from, a little town, uh, eight hours from New York City, called Buffalo just spent a whole bunch of money they don't have to build a stadium they don't need for a football team that doesn't care about Buffalo. But the game theory of it is if we don't, they're going to go somewhere else. Amazon did the same thing when they got cities to bid against each other for the headquarters they never built. And what I blogged about, and I was hopeful but not surprised when it didn't happen, uh, is that the cities should just get together and sign a contract with each other. And they should form a union and say, We're never going to, there are penalties for breaking this deal. The deal is, we're not going to bid to steal a team from another city. The end. And then all of a sudden, their power goes up. So if I was an orthodontist doing important work that helps people for the rest of their lives, I'd figure out how can I get an hour a day or hour a week to organize all the other orthodontists I know who care about them. Because if you are part of a group of 100 or 1,000 or 5,000 orthodontists who can point and say this vendor instead of that vendor, because we're keeping track of this, you can bet the vendors are going to pay attention in a way they're not paying attention now. And I think that it makes sense to form cartels that work to make things better as opposed to cartels that just try to sell drugs.
6: Thank you, Seth. I'll talk to my national society about just
3: what you said. They won't do it because they're filled with fear. You're going to have to do it without them because think about what kind of person gets the job of executive director of a national society of whatever, right? They signed up because it's a job where the phone doesn't ring very much. So, you know, I I did a talk years and years ago for the American Heart Association and I bought my friend who's a cardiologist and I said, I don't think you guys really care about solving heart disease. This was after like three hours of ranting and raving about the marketing that leads to heart problems. They said, you know, of course we do. I said, I can tell you one thing right now that would save a hundred thousand lives a year and you won't do it. And they're like, yes, we would. And I said, all you have to do is announce that every Tuesday is no meat Tuesday and use all of your connections and all of your leverage to, and they said, we can't do that. The farmers will be mad at us. I said, like I said, you don't really care. And the kind of people who work at the American Heart Association, meanwhile, but they also represent the status quo. And if we're going to change the status quo, we're going to need to make new associations, new cartels, new stories, because the very people who are keeping us in place are the status quo.
6: Wow. Thank you,
3: Seth.
4: Ola Banji, maybe you can ask your question and then Jen can close the conversation. Yeah,
0: sure. Um, And and I had a question about your book, The Song of Significance, but I'm glad that you, you sort of talked about it a little bit um in answer to another question but um so said today is the day that you're travelling out of the planet earth and you might not be coming back anytime soon <laughs> and you have a chance to leave the the earth with three lessons the maxims that everyone would live by what would those be
3: oh. <laughs> <laughs> I right, Well, the first one's easy. When in doubt, ask Alabangi for advice. That's the first rule <laughs> that everyone needs to learn.
1: <laughs>
3: um, you know, the Maxim Makers have been very consistent for thousands of years,
0: mm.
3: right? They've come up with very simple, reflexive rules about treating the future like it's now, about Treating other people the way you want to be treated. They're not very hard. They have been abused for many generations by kings, by people who seek power, and by industrialists. Because, you know, the invisible hand of the market does solve a lot of problems, but it needs guidance. And culture doesn't exist to enable capitalism. Capitalism enable is there to enable culture. So I don't think that's a maxim, but I think the reason we need people to remind us of what's important is because we've been so indoctrinated by profit and power-seeking folks who don't care about the long run. So I have no great wisdom for you that I haven't blogged before, but I will be bringing chocolate with me on my trip away from Earth. <laughs> Love it.
0: As you should. Thank you so much. It's a beautiful answer. Yeah.
1: So, Seth, thank you so much for your time with us today. This has been a marvelous carbon uh, conversation, carbon sessions conversation. We're thankful that you sparked this wonderful project that has grown into a highly interconnected international community that is making meaningful impact and impactful decisions to help improve our future. And uh, and we are so, so grateful. So do you have any final words before we sign off?
3: So usually when I sign off, I tell people to go make a ruckus because the implication is that they're not all ready. And to the folks on this call, all I can say is thank you. Thank you for helping me raise my game. Thank you for trusting me. Thank you for caring. And thank you for leaving because you are making a ruckus. That's
5: amazing. Thank you, Seth. Thank
3: Thank you. you Thank you, Seth. Thank you. Take care, everybody.
2: You've been listening to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. We'd love you to join the Carbon Sessions so you too can share your perspectives from wherever you are. This is a great way for our community to learn from your ideas and experiences, connect and take action. If you want to add your voice to the conversation, go to thecarbonalmanac.org slash podcasts and sign up to be part of a future episode. This podcast is also part of the Carbon Almanac Network. For more information, to sign up for the emails, to join the movement and to order your copy of the Carbon Almanac, go to thecarbonalmanac.org. Be sure to subscribe and join us here again as together we can change the world.